0: Chapter Ten of *The Lady of the North Star* by Otwell Binns. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A desperate situation. An hour later, Roger Bracknell started on his way back to the police post in a not very happy frame of mind. The chief of Fort Pilgrim was a man with little tolerance for failure, and the corporal knew that when he made his report it would be received with frowns. That was inevitable. But there was nothing for it but to return. His cousin and the Indian Joe had taken very effective measures to prevent him following on their trail when they had left him with a depleted dog team and with only sufficient rations to carry him as far as North Star Lodge. Sorry as he was for his cousin, he yet resented the action which had left him helpless, and his failure rankled as he swung steadily forward on the southward trail. Before the end of the day, however, a thought came to him. Duty was duty, and if he could reach North Star Lodge, there would be dogs there, and he could requisition them in the King's name and return to the pursuit. It did not seem a very nice thing to contemplate, but his oath of service left him no option while the officer at Fort Pilgrim was bound to look askance at the whole affair if he returned to explain that Coona Dick was his cousin and that he had escaped him. Besides, there was joy to consider. She could never be safe from molestation, while Dick Bracknell was at large. It was even possible that the latter, finding the territory growing too hot for him, might venture to follow her to England. And as her husband, claim his rights. That must be prevented at all costs, even at the cost of Dick's suffering incarceration in the penal prison at Stony Mountain. The end of the day, however, brought an unlooked-for event which made an end of these half-formed plans. He had camped for the night, and having fed his dogs with the dried salmon roe, which formed their staple food, was preparing his own meal when one of the animals, gave a sudden, sharp howl of pain. He looked hastily round, and saw the dog twisted in some kind of spasm, its backbone arched, its legs jerking, in a strange fashion. He went to it, and as he approached, the spasm ended, and the dog lay in the snow, completely exhausted. He was stooping over it, wondering what was the matter, when the other two dogs howled simultaneously and he turned swiftly to see one of them leap straight in the air, and, in a moment, both of them were in spasms similar to the one he had already witnessed, and before his eyes one of them curled up like a bow, then suddenly relaxed and lay stark and dead. A dark suspicion shot through his mind as he jerked himself upright. The first dog was plainly at the point of death, while the third was twisted by spasms that could have but one ending. He knew that there could be no recovery, that he could do nothing for them, and, in a swift impulse of mercy, he drew his pistol and shot them. Then he strode to the sled, and, lifting the small bale of dog food, carried it to the fire, and by the flames of the burning pine, examined it carefully. He had not to look long before he came upon some small white crystals in the creases of the row. They might be snow, they might be frost crystals, but he did not think that they were either, and selecting one of the smallest of the white specks, he placed it on his tongue. It was exceedingly bitter in taste. "'Strychnine!' he cried aloud, and then stood looking at the dead dogs with horror shining in his eyes. As he stood there, one question was beating in his brain. "'Who had done this thing? Who? Who?' His thoughts flew back to his cousin, had he? No. He could not believe that, for whoever had placed the strychnine in the dog food had callously planned to murder him, and bad as Dick Bracknell was, the corporal felt that his cousin would not have done a thing like this. "'There's that Indian Joe,' he said, speaking his thoughts aloud. From what Dick said, he was afraid of me, and he would have disposed of me at the beginning if he had had his way, he was silent for a little time. Then he nodded his head. Yes, the Indian did it without Dick's knowledge. For the moment, he refused to think further about the matter. About him was the gloom of the pines, with their pall of snow, and everywhere the terrible silence of the north. Alone and without dogs to carry his stores, the situation was altogether desperate. And to reflect upon it overmuch was the court madness so he put the thought of it from him for the time being, and after dragging the dead dogs into the shadow of the forest, resumed the preparation of his evening meal. When he had eaten it, he erected a windscreen, and lying in a sleeping bag with his feet to the fire, lighted a pipe, and once more considered the problem before him. It was at least four days' journey to North Star Lodge, probably five or six, since he would have to carry the necessaries of life himself, and so burdened would not be able to travel fast. There was food for four days on the sled, and to make sure of reaching North Star, he would have to put himself on rations and travel as fast as he could. Barring accidents, there was an even chance of his getting through. But if any ill chance arose, then... He did not finish the thought. Knocking the ashes out of his pipe, He stretched himself down in the sleeping berth, and presently fell asleep. When he awoke, it was still dark, and the fire was burning low. He looked at his watch. It was five o'clock. He stretched himself a little, and, thrusting his arm out of the sleeping bag, he threw a couple of spruce boughs on the fire. The resinous wood quickly caught, and as it flared up, he looked round. On the edge of the circle of light, which his fire cut out of the darkness, Something caught his eye. He looked again. Two tiny globes of light, about three feet above the ground, appeared to be suspended on nothing. He watched them steadily, and, for the briefest moment of time, saw them eclipsed. Then they reappeared. He looked further. There were other twin globes of light, scattered all round. And as the spruce crackled in the flame, he caught sight of an animal's head, and the outline of its form. "'Timberwolves,' he whispered to himself. Feeling for his automatic pistol, he lay waiting his opportunity. Undoubtedly, the bodies of his dead dogs had already served the savage beasts for a meal, and now they were watching him, perhaps already counting him their prey. He did not feel particularly afraid. He knew that the wolf is really a coward, and that unless driven by hunger, It seldom attacks man, but all the same he thought it wise to teach the beast a lesson. So when the shadowy form of one of the beasts moved, he sighted and fired. The wolf gave a yelp, jumped clean in the air, and dropped dead well within the circle of firelight. He looked round again. The watching eyes in the darkness had disappeared. Presently, however, they returned, and lying perfectly still, He saw a gaunt dog-wolf slink out of the shadows towards its dead comrade and fall on it with its teeth. Another followed and another, and a moment later there was a snarling tangle of furry beasts where the dead wolf had been. Who? he whistled to himself, as he noted their disregard of the firelight. They're mad with hunger. He emptied his pistol into the bunch, and the pack fell back, leaving three of its number dead in the snow. Of the first wolf nothing remained but the skull and tail. Behind the trees the snarling yelping continued, and as he crept out of his sleeping bag, he conjectured that others of the beasts had been injured by his shots and were falling prey to their hungry companions. There was a serious look upon his face as, crossing to the other side of the fire, he picked up the dead wolves and one by one flung them into the darkness, where, as his ears assured him, they also became food for their famished packmates. He had meant to commence his journey at an early hour, but the presence of the wolf pack forced him to reconsider his plans, and to delay until dawn. The interval he filled by packing his stores in a convenient form for carrying, and with the aid of things from the sled and his sleeping bag, he devised a knapsack, which, while it bulked large, was not really heavy. Then he breakfasted, and that done, as the dawn broke, looked round once more. On one side of him the wolves were still in the shadows of the trees, and as he turned to look on the other, his eye caught the package of poisoned salmon roe, which was still upon the sledge. A thought struck him. The very thing, he muttered, and going to the sled, He broke up the food with an axe and then scattered it in small portions about the camping place. I shall bag some of them for certain, he said, as he saw the wolves watching him. When they find it, they'll bolt like one o'clock. The day had well broken when, adjusting his snowshoes, he shouldered his pack and stepped out on the trail. None of the wolves were now in sight, but he had gone only a little way when a sharp howl behind him told him that they were still about. He looked back. A little spur of trees on the bank hid his late camp, but as he glanced back, a wolf leaped on the ice, ran howling a short way, then dropped in the snow. Other yelps of pain came from behind the screen of trees, and as the sound reached him, a sigh of satisfaction came in his eyes. "'It's working like a charm,' he said to himself. There's an end of Mr. Wolf for this trip, I fancy. As he journeyed, he kept a sharp lookout, turning frequently to observe the trail behind him. Not a single wolf appeared, and through the short day he marched on, a solitary living thing in a landscape that was unutterably forlorn and desolate. The quick night drew on, and he decided to camp. Halting in a sheltered cove, he felled a small spruce gathered some dry twigs, and built himself a fire. Then he thrust his hands into his tunic pocket for matches. They were gone. He had lost them. For a minute or two he was filled with dismay, and real terror clutched at his heartstrings. For to be without means of making a fire in the desolate Northland is to have entered the valley of the shadow of death. Then he recalled an old device of the voyagers and proceeded to put it into execution. With his jackknife, he cut some thin shavings of spruce, mixed them with a handful of dead lichen scraped from trees, and biting the bullets from a couple of cartridges, shook the powder of one over the little heap that he had made, and with that from the other cartridge made a short train. Then he fired his pistol to light the train. The powder caught, spluttered, and burned out without lighting the lichen and the pine shavings. And the operation had to be performed three times before it was successful. He built up his fire, and when it was well going, and he was congratulating himself on his success, a thought struck him. Hastily, he examined his bandolier. He had but three cartridges left. As he weighed the metal shells in his hand, his face grew very serious, each of them Carried a message of death, but to him, as a sole means of making a fire, they were to him the bridge of life and a precarious bridge at that, with at least three camps to make before he reached North Star Lodge. he recognized that the chances were almost desperate, and that only care and skill and a large slice of luck could carry him through very carefully. he stowed the cartridges where they would be safe against damp or accidental loss, and then proceeded to cook his meal. The next morning he started an hour before dawn. Light snow was falling, but he could not afford to regard that, and on snowshoes he pressed forward steadily. It began to blow, and he sought the lee of the river bank for shelter. Then that happened, which put a term to his journey. A great tree, well up the bank, collapsed under its weight of snow. Roger Bracknell caught the rendering sound of its fall and instinctively leaped aside. But the snowshoes embarrassed him, and he fell. A bough of the falling tree alighted on his right leg, snapping it like a pipe stem, and pinning him down in the snow. Under the first shock of pain, he almost fainted, but in a minute or two recovered himself sufficiently to take stock of the situation. It was, as he instantly recognized, very desperate. He sat up and tried to move the weight from his leg. The bough which held him fast was not a very thick one, but the weight of the tree was behind it. And with his hatchet he began to cut through the branch. Every stroke he made jarred him terribly. And more than once he had to desist. But at last the bough parted, and he was able to push the weight from his leg he was however in little better case since he could not stand upright and to crawl would have been futile even if the deepening snow had allowed the possibility of doing so he looked round and through the falling snow caught sight of the somber pine woods they had a funeral look and in their shadows brooded the menace of the north which had surely overtaken him at last death was staring him in the eyes He took out his pocketbook and made shift to write a note to his superior down at the post. Then he took out his pistol and loaded it with one of the cartridges that had held his life, but which now carried only death, swift and merciful. It was no use waiting. He held the pistol ready, and for a moment his thoughts strayed to Joy Gargrave. Would she ever hear? Would she guess that he? His thoughts broke off suddenly, through the gloom. Of the falling snow, he caught a sound of voices. Someone, it seemed, was urging a dog team to greater efforts. Was he dreaming? He listened carefully. No. There it was again. And with it came the yelp of a dog cut by a whip. A great wave of thankfulness rolled over him. He shouted and fired his pistol in the air. A moment later came an answering shout, and he called back again, presently out of the snow murk, emerged the forms of two men Indians and as they bent over him he lapsed into unconsciousness End of chapter ten